Good evening, church. Today's scripture reading is taken from Nehemiah 8, verses 1 to 8. Nehemiah 8, verses 1 to 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they, they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Naya, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Makijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshiah, Bani, Sharabiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azara, Josabat, Hanan, Pliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the word of the Lord. Speed to God. Thank you, Charlotte, for reading for us the word this evening. And church, before I begin sharing the word, I just want to give you the heads up that uh, the word this evening would be rather long. Okay, it would be longer than my usual sermon. But nevertheless, I find that this is an important message that God has given to us at this time in the church. And I do pray that God's word will continue to just minister to us. So with that, can I invite you to just bow our heads as we commit this time to God in prayer. So gracious and heavenly Father, as we come before you, we ask of you, Lord, that your ancient words will continue to speak to us. Your word that give us hope, your word that give us life, that give us strength. Lord, as we prepare to come with open hearts, we pray, Lord, that your word will impart in us to change us and to continue to convict us. So Holy Spirit, come, minister to us that as we hear your word, you will speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now this evening's service, the sermon title that I've entitled is not Scandal at Watergate, but Revival at Watergate. 
And so we begin that in the year 1904, you find that what began as a simple prayer movement ultimately affected the entire nation of Wales. Evan Roberts, a poor coal miner, was touched by the Spirit of God through this particular prayer meeting. And as a result, upon returning home, he promptly challenged the people in his village to do the few things. He challenged them to confess of any known sin, to undo any wrongs that have been done to others. He challenged them to put away any sinful habit, to obey the Spirit promptly, and to continue to confess Christ publicly. And what followed was truly quite remarkable. After a series of further prayer meetings, revival spread like wildfire over all the entire country. And within a space of five short months, more than 100,000 people were converted throughout. Wales had certainly encountered the greatest revival in history. Now, about 400 years earlier in Europe, Germany, a similar incident occurred. We find that God lit a fire in the lives of several men that eventually led to a significant change in the history of Christianity. You see, as the Roman Catholic Church was in a state of corruption and spiritual limbo, God's Word and Spirit burned deep into the hearts of these faithful men. And it wasn't long before the likes of people like John Calvin and Martin Luther, they responded by bringing about a tremendous and traumatic change and revival throughout Europe to what is known now in church history as the Great Reformation. And you find that ever since then, God has been doing His mighty work of revival in the course of time. And as you can see up in the screen, these are the faces of revival. So what caused revival? What caused men and women to willingly turn away from their sinful ways? If you to study these revivals, you find that it reveals that it has to involve in two divine works. Firstly, there's always the presence of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, there is the power of the Word of God. So seen in another way, for revival to occur, there must always be the proclamation of God's Word. Whenever there's the proclamation of God's Word, there must always also be the response of God's people. And you find that tucked away in this very chapter of Nehemiah chapter 8 is perhaps what I term as the first biblical revival ever recorded. Because we find here the Spirit of God together with the Word of God being proclaimed stirred the hearts of God's people to be changed and transformed. But before we dive into the passage for today, it is helpful for us to recap the current situation. You see, thus far we have journeyed with Nehemiah from the very beginning in chapter 1, where God planted a burden in his heart for the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. We saw this man's faith as he prayed and then trusted in God as he approached the king to request for leave of absence as well as to seek for the necessary materials for the rebuilding project. We accompanied him when he inspected the walls and then when he mobilized the team for his building project. 
And then when opposition and problems arose, Nehemiah, as we have seen, stood firm and he resisted. And now after more than 52 days, the city was finally rebuilt, the walls was finished, and the gates was finally hung in its place. We were thinking that job done, finished. But you know, you discover that though this massive construction project has been completed, there still seemed to be something that was missing. And Nehemiah sensed that there was a spiritual vacuum within the city. Why? Because he sensed that the Israelites, they were still very much living in their sinful ways. In other words, although the physical needs of the Jews had been addressed, the spiritual needs were still currently neglected. And what was needed to deal with this problem was simply to revive their, to, and to revive their spiritual lethargy. What was simply needed was a dose of God's holy word. And you find that that's exactly what Nehemiah did. Because as he began to gather the people together, he began to introduce the public reading of Holy Scriptures. And church, I want you to realize this, that whenever we, you and I, as God's people, the moment we get away from loving, the moment we get away from wanting to read and to obey the Word of God, we will end up like the Jews of Nehemiah days. It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who rightly said this, that the primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the Word of God. And then he continues to add that the decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching, and may I add, reading of the Word had declined. And Martin Lloyd-Jones is correct, isn't it? The moment we as Christians, we fail to read God's manual given to us, that's where our spiritual life will decline tremendously. And this is a grim and solemn warning that you and I, including myself, we must all take note. And my prayer is that we may not enter into this stage of spiritual decline. Because if you enter into this stage, my prayer is that you may be able to come out of this wilderness spirit. But as I know of some Christians, once they enter into this stage, they struggle to come back into the fold. So if God is to work in and through us, then know that His Word must begin to stir in our hearts. His Word must have an impact in our lives. And so in today's sermon, we will look into this portion of Scriptures which reveals to us that for God's Word to really have this impact in your life and mine, it involves three things, three steps. Firstly, it involves for us the understanding of the Word which involves our mind. There's a need for us to respond to the word, which involves our heart, and it involves the obedience of the word, which deals with our will. And so before there can be any life-changing experiences in your life and mine, God's word must always first be understood in our mind. And so you find that not surprisingly, if you look with me to the passage, you find 
that five times throughout this passage, this word understand is being mentioned. Verse 2, it says that all who could understand what they heard. Verse 3, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. Verse 7, help the people to understand the law. Verse 8, so that the people understood the reading. Verse 12, because they had understood the word. Note that understanding is not just simply gaining knowledge. No. When we talk about understanding, it's more than just gaining knowledge. It is that full realization of the truth and its implication. So take, for example, if you want to buy a car. Owning a car is not just for convenience sake. Yes, it's easy. You know, it's able to get you from one place to another. I know many of you, when you want to come to church, some of you have been telling me, you know, to take Grab is so, so expensive. To hail a taxi, no taxi, you want to come. So it's better to get a car. It's convenient, yes. But at the same time, it's not just for convenience sake. There must be the understanding to the full implication that comes with owning a car. Because you see, when you purchase a car, there's not only the monthly loan that you have to consider. There'll be other costs like road tax, insurance, that's the maintenance that you have to look after, the petrol. And for those of you who stay in HDB, you have to pay for the car park. And if these are not considered and even neglected, then, you, then you'll find that you have failed in fully understanding the implication of purchasing a vehicle. So who then was the ideal man to conduct such a large-scale Bible study so that the people of God could understand the Word? You find in the passage again that the person was none other than this man called Ezra. Verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. Now, thus far we find in the story, Ezra is not mentioned anywhere. But records do show us that he had arrived in Jerusalem about some 14 years earlier before Nehemiah. His purpose and ministry was simply to bring the people back to the ways of the Lord, and one of which was to purge out the mixed marriages that had occurred within the community. But more importantly, you find that Ezra as a priest as a scholar and as a teacher, he certainly was the perfect and ideal candidate for this job. And church, I want you to observe this. Nehemiah didn't stand in Ezra's way. Nehemiah wasn't one of those leaders who insists that, you know, I'm the leader, that despite my limited ability or despite I'm not able to teach, I'm still the one supposed to carry this job of teaching the Word of God. No, Nehemiah didn't stand in Ezra's way. Nehemiah was a true spiritual leader who knew his limitations. He didn't insist that because he was the boss, he had the right to teach the Word. Instead, we find that he delegated or he assigned Ezra for this next big task while he himself was willingly to take a back seat. Not that he was lazy, but rather he knew that the spiritual needs of the people were far greater and more important than his pride. And that was why he didn't oppose Ezra taking the spotlight when he came to the public reading of the word to the crowd. 
that the site of the assembly at the water gate in verse 1 is also another interesting point of comment. You see, water in the Bible often depicts cleansing. Water in the Bible also often depicts the presence of God's Spirit. And that the people were gathered together at this place called Watergate signifies that God's Word and God's Spirit coming together to bring about a spiritual cleansing upon the people. Hence, revival at the Watergate. And so again, to help the people understand God's Word, as we look once again into the text, we find that Ezra had to perform three very fundamental steps. And the first logical step was to bring forth the book. Verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. What was the book that Ezra retrieved? We are told that it was the book of the law of Moses. And this was the entire scroll of the Korah the first four books of the Bible, the very foundation of the Jewish religion. That the people needed to know God's revelation of His will and His ways was urgent. And that was why this massive Christian education program was planned. But crucially, I want you to notice this, that the fact that the book needed to be brought forth implies what? Implies that the Word has been kept and has not been used at all. It tells us that the book of the law has been left on the shelf for many years and probably is now being covered with cobwebs. The question for us is this, does our Bible need to be brought down and used? But bringing the book alone is not enough. This is just the first step. You see, it's useless to keep, to, to keep it close when the contents are not being reviewed at all. And so we find that the next step that Ezra undertook after the book was being brought forth, Ezra now need to open the book. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And for sure, you know that the scriptures are filled with great riches and truths. And as we patiently and we diligently search for these great riches buried in God's truth, God's Word, through a disciplined time of reading, praying, studying, and meditating, we will find them. The Bible affirms that these treasures in the truth of God's Word will be to us, as what Psalms 119 verse 105 says, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's Word will guide us in the most difficult of situations. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that God's Word will be able to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us into righteousness. The Word of God reveals to us God's character, His love, His mercy, His redemptive plan and will for our lives. God's Word teaches us many truths. In case for some of you may not realize this, do you know that God, if that the Bible teaches us something about tattoos. Do you know that the Bible tells us that the prophet Elijah was bald? Some of you may not realize this. And the challenge, therefore, for us is that we really need to open the book and to read the book. 
And the point here is this, we can only discover all this truth only when we begin to open the book. But as the book was brought forth and opened, the third step was to read to the whole congregation that was present. Verse 3, And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Wow! Did you hear that? The people of God heard the word being read from when? Early morning until midday. We can therefore say that the congregation devoted to about five to six hours a day. And mind you, not seated like all of you, they were standing, listening to the truth of God's word continuously. And verse 18 tells us that they did this for seven straight days. How many of us can do that? It shows that they were desperate. They were hungry for the Word of God. Nothing was going to stop them from receiving it. And yet, here we are, where some of us even struggle even to read the Bible for 15 minutes or maybe even 10 minutes. And we struggle to continue reading the Word. But the people devoted six hours a day for seven days listening to the public reading of the Word. Now, let me also add that part of this reading was also to teach the Word. Because as we have seen in verse 8, verse 8 tells us that to ensure that the people make sense of it and to understand the reading, it has to be taught. You know, it's ironic today that when the Bible is considered to be the world's most circulated book, that the Bible is supposed to be the bestseller of all bestseller, yet reading of its content has become a neglected discipline for many of us. What is unfortunately lacking is this respect for the Word of God. As my favorite author and teacher, Warren Wisebe, rightly corrected, he pointed this to us. He says, yes, we will defend the Bible as the Word of God, but how many of us really treat it like the Word of God? We go around and say, yes, we believe in the Bible. We believe that the Bible is true. But do we really treat it really as the Word of God? That it is so precious, it's so important that we need to spend time reading it? This is what Warren Wiseby is telling us. May we not be guilty of not bringing the book, opening and reading the book. May this be our motivation to take it down from the shelf, wipe the dust off the cobweb and begin to study, to reflect, to meditate, and to allow God's Word to sink deep into our being, into our hearts, into our minds. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak and transform areas of our life that needs to be changed, you find that there will be revival in our lives. And so as the people in Jerusalem heard the Word being read by Ezra, and as they began to understand its implication, what was their response? The next section from verses 9 to 12 offers to us three 
responses. The first being that there was the response of conviction and grief. The ending of verse 9 records that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now think about this. Why was there weeping? What was the reason for the people? Once they hear the word of God being read, why, why, why was it that they were weeping? You see, the answer was quite simply because God's word was making a tremendous impact upon their lives. That as they turned to the book and read its content, the Jews discovered that they were guilty. They recognized of their own sinful nature. That all these years they were living with no spiritual input. They were not obeying what the word of the Lord was telling them to do. And later on, you'll find in Nehemiah some of the things that they were, they were guilty of. They were guilty of mixed marriages. They were guilty of doing things that displeased the Lord. Yes, though they were considered as God's people. Yes, though they know that they belong to God. Yet, the Almighty God was absent in their everyday lives. Is this the same for us? We are God's people. But is God absent from our lives? Because we have not read the book, because we have not been obedient, we have not wanting to live the will that the Father wants us to do? And if that's the case, exactly very much like the people here. And the need for us all the more to confess and repent. But moreover, we will find that as they continue to read the book, they wept because they lamented the fact that they were a rebellious people, that their forefathers had this rebellious streak. And because of this rebellious streak, it had caused them to fall into captivity. And that was why they are where they are right now. And it's very clear that when the Holy Spirit begins to open up sinful minds, understanding comes, and the natural reaction is one of weeping and confession. You see, the root of any spiritual revival is and always be this vivid reality of God's holiness, goodness, and mercy in contrast to our shamefulness, offensive, and personal sins. So when we read the Word of God, are we reading with open minds, open hearts? Are we convicted? Are we grieving over our shortfall and failings? Or are we like the Pharisees, that when we read the Word of God and say, this is not for me, this is for you. It's nothing to do with me. Moving on, we find in verse 10 that from conviction, the another response of the people was cleansing. You see, the God who convicts sin is also the same God who is mercy and safe. God's Word not only reveals the sin in our life that causes us to grieve, God's Word also brings forth forgiveness and the assurance of His love for us. And that is why when you look in verse 10, Nehemiah uh, Ezra and a few of the others instructed the Israelites. He, they tell them, cease your weeping. It says in verse 10, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. They are to cease their weeping. Why? Not because they, they were innocent, 
Rather, it was to bring home the point that they, if they were really sincere, true repentance will always lead to God's forgiveness. And know for sure that a sincere confession over our sin is never a far cry from God's forgiveness and joy because we have a God who is merciful. And as children of God, we can hold on to this truth that in the cleansing of our sins upon sincere repentance, because 1 John 1 verse 9 reminds us, and we often recite this in our confessional, that if we confess of our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all from unrighteousness. So there's cleansing, there's forgiveness. And thirdly, know that as God's word bring about this conviction and cleansing, there's also a time of rejoicing. There will be a time of celebration. This is why verse 10, Nehemiah told the people, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Truth of the matter is, there's so much that you and I, we can rejoice in. As Christians, you and I, we can rejoice for what Jesus did on the cross for our sins, for our redemption, for our salvation. We can also rejoice in His providence and His great love. And certainly for the Jews, there's great reason for celebration. They celebrate this same reason. But not only that, they also celebrate the fact that they are forgiven, that once again, they are under now the covenant of Yahweh. Not that Yahweh had abandoned them, but more than the other way around. That despite of them abandoning God, God was still willing to accept them back into the fold. There was also rejoicing and celebrating for two other reasons. Firstly, Nehemiah says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. So when the Lord gives us His joy, we have that strength to accomplish anything. And that is certainly something that we can rejoice and be grateful for. Secondly, they can also rejoice because verse 12 says that they begin to understand the word that were declared to them. And this understanding of scriptures became even more evident as the people demonstrated this desire to want to live out a life of obedience to God's word. And so this brings us now to the final point in the sermon today the need for us to obey the word if there is to be a revival in our midst. Moving on to verse 13, we are told that as the crowd gathered together once more on the second day, we see once again here as mentioned that desire, that, desi that hunger to want to know more and more of God's word. But notice this time, instead of just merely hearing and reading the word. We are told here in verse 13 that they were now studying the words of the law. This time around, they are not just merely reading for content, but they want to go deeper to grasp the truth in the word. And as they do so, they were willing to obey to what it said. You see, it's not enough just to hear the word of God Obedience to the word must follow because they go hand in hand. Now, I want to applaud those of you, you know, if you delight in continuing to read your word every day, 
praise the Lord, continue to do so. You know, if you are those who, who likes to study the Word of God, you attend BSF, you go for some Bible class, and so continue to do so. You know, if you like to read commentaries, go ahead, buy whatever commentaries you want to buy. There's absolutely nothing wrong with all of these acts. But listen, if your aim for studying God's Word is merely for knowledge and not centered on the desire to want to obey what the Word says, then let me say that all these things that you're doing is just academic. It is no use knowing the content of God's Word without application. When we know the Word without obedience, we end up being like the religious Jews whom Jesus condemns in an episode that is found in John chapter 5, verse 39. And here is this incident where we are told, let me just briefly summarize for you. Here's the incident where our Lord was commending on the people's keenness in wanting to search the Scriptures to find eternal life. And yet Jesus says, as the word bears witness and points to Him regarding to eternal life, these religious and studious Jews, they refuse to accept and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. So simply put, this Pharisees, they were just studying scriptures merely for knowledge without any application. They were just merely studying the word to show how clever or how wise they were without putting what they have learned into use. And you know, the same can be also for us, isn't it? We may be able to recite the Bible, memorize it very well, but if you don't apply it, it is of no use at all. In my many years of experience, I've discovered one thing. I used to tell people, church, you want to grow, you must read the Bible. But I realized, not quite right, lah. All right? Because I begin to realize there are many Christians who read the Bible, but yet they are not living a right life. And I begin to realize that the problem is not reading the Word. The problem why they are not growing as disciples is because they are not applying the truth in their lives. Why are people still living in divorce? Why are there people still living in sinful life? When you ask them, when you counsel them, they'll tell you, yes, I know what the Bible says. But why are they not doing it? Simply because they're not obedient. They're not applying what the Word of God tells them to do. And as James 1.22 rightly affirms, that we must be doers of the Word and not just hearers. Because if you just hear the word, James continues to add that you deceive yourself. And church, I want to tell you that, yeah, I know, sometimes being obedient to the word is not easy. I know. I can testify to you, all right? And I will share with you my own struggles. You know, many of you know that my root church, my first church, the St. Hilda's Church, just somewhere down the road in Katong. That's my first church. I grew up there. Born, baptized as a Christian, confirmed there, grew up as a youth. That was my whole life for many, many years. But when the Lord called me to uproot my home church in St. Hilda's, I tell you, it's not easy. I remember my son, Gabriel. He was protesting emotionally. You know why? Because he wanted everything to be St. Hilda's. 
He was studying in St. Hilda's Primary School. He was from St. Hilda's Kindergarten. <laughs> he wants to be St. Hilda's Church. So he was protesting, no, no, I don't want. So, so it was difficult as a family to uproot myself. And I'm sure many of you, older and faithful ones in all things, you probably understand my sentiments. You have grown you up all your life in your formative years and to finally move on, that's not an easy thing to do. But church, the point here is this. When God calls us to move, when the Word of God speaks to us, that's where we must obey without fail. And so I left my family, my friends, my colleagues of well over 40 years to where God was going to lead me. And now as we see that as the Israelites studied the Word, they found that God required them to do something. God had asked them to keep the feast of Booth as a harvest festival. The people of Israel were to dwell in Booth, constructed with woods during the seventh month. And bear in mind, you know, this, this effort of going out to find and collect tree branches and then you know, erecting and living in this booth, as you can see, an example up in the screen, this was certainly very inconvenient. I mean, why want to do all this thing? But again, as you look in verse 17, as they read the word, they understood its implication. The people obeyed willingly, and they did so, mind you, listen to this, they did so with great rejoicing. Why? Because nothing compares with knowing that we are doing and obeying God's will. So Ezra brought the book out so that the people could hear the content of God's word. And as they understood what was written, they responded, they obeyed, and what resulted was a revival. Can God ignite a revival in all saints? Can God do a revival work as He did in Nehemiah's time in our midst today? If you look through history, you find that, of course, God can. Nothing is impossible with God. But if we desire and if we long for one in our church, understand that it first begins with us, you and I. Psalms 19 verse 7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's Word, when you read upon it, when you understand, when you study, when you meditate, it is able to revive the soul. But it begins with you and I. It begins with us wanting to have that open heart. If we just read it for just mere reading, God's Word will never penetrate. God's Word will never speak to us. And if we are living in a situation where there's sin in our lives, where we struggle to forgive people, and I know this is one of the many great sins of many of us as Christians. Someone has hurt us so greatly and we can't forgive that person. Or maybe because, you know, our pride, our attitude, 
you know, we tend to look down on others. We tend to criticize. If these things are still in us and we are not living right, we don't read the Word of God to allow it to speak to us. Church, there will never be a revival in our church. So today, the challenge for us that God can do a work in our midst, but it starts with us. It starts with us. It starts with us by returning to the Word today. It's time that you and I, we need to take back our spiritual life seriously if we have not. And again, I urge those of you, if you're living in sin, not willing to forgive people or you're doing the things that is not in obedience to what the Word of God says. It's time to do something, church. In my Bible, I've written these words as a reminder for me and I pray that it will also be a reminder for you as well. And I'll end with this. It simply says this. Go to your Bible regularly. Open it prayerfully. Read it expectantly and let the Word of God revive us joyfully. So may the Word of God continue to minister to us, to challenge us, to revive us. Let us stand. As we close, I want us to just reflect on the words that have been shared today and perhaps maybe reflect on your own lives. Is your life in need of a spiritual revival? Are you living a life that is pleasing to the Lord? If the Lord were to come today and do a spiritual check on you, what will He say to you? If today you know that there are some areas that you need to change, Would you take that step to allow the Word to minister, to speak to you and to say that, yes, today, Lord, I want to do a revival. Start with me. Start with me. Because really, we need to take our spiritual life back and to be serious with it. So once again, we pray, Lord, that your words as been spoken this evening will continue to minister to us. Speak to us, we pray. Speak to us in the area that needs to be changed. That we have been neglecting your word. Lord, we confess of our sins to you. We repent and say, Father, we are sorry. Forgive us for where we have failed. May we not end up like the rich man who went away in sorrow because he failed to obey your word. But Father, help us to be faithful disciples in obeying your word. And it's such that we will have revival, that the church will have this revival. Thank you, Lord. And as we close, let's stand as we sing this song. And as we do so, let's make it truly a prayer. Yeah. That the revival will start with us first. That revival will begin with me that the areas that need to be changed will be changed. Thank you, Lord.